Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast. It's a podcast that we produce together with our friends at Princeton University Press. Today, I'm very pleased to say we have Robert Kirk on the show, and he's the publisher of the Pedia series from Princeton University Press. This is a remarkable series of books. Uh, they are um, mostly about nature, I think I would say. They are small books that you can carry around with you if you're interested in uh, things like dinosaurs and birds and rocks and trees. This is a series of books, a lovely series of books, which you will want to buy. And so we're very pleased to have Robert on the show today to talk about how the whole thing was put together. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Marshall. Um, Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I am the publisher for Nature Books at Princeton. I've been there 21 years. Uh, before that, I was uh, worked for a trade publisher in the UK called Bloomsbury, uh, who actually published Harry Potter there. So that was fun. Wow. Um, um, yeah, but I've been uh, here 21 years developing the uh, Princeton Nature List, which is now one of the largest in the world. It, it is one of the largest in the world. Are you also... Uh, um... Do you do their math books as well? No, we have that, a, a, separate... um, a dedicated uh, editor who does the math. Um, that's unusual, I have to say, because whenever we do a math book on the New Books Network, it's from Princeton. I was wondering yeah, about that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, the pop, we, you know, some people would say this is a sort of contradiction in terms, but we call it our popular math list. Um, there you go. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. Um, they are very, very popular books. They are. Well, we, we do a lot of them, and we're always happy to see them. So let's jump right into it. Um, the Pedia series is quite unusual for an academic publisher. Um, how did it originate and what were you hoping to accomplish with it? It was, I have to say, I'd love to say it was my idea, but um, Lawrence Millman, the author of the Fungopedia volume, actually sent a proposal, already finished pretty much, and said, would you be interested in publishing this? It was a, you know, a simple word document, A to Z, coverage of fungi. And I thought it was great. He's a, an excellent writer. Uh, his first novel, or not novel, actually, his first book uh, was shortlisted for a Pulitzer Prize. So wow. the guy can write. And it's very entertaining. And I thought it was great. But I think the thing that I brought to it was the idea that we could package this to be a very attractive, small, boutique-y looking, um, the kind of books you see on, on the front desk at Barnes & Nobles or independent bookstores. So it had to look very attractive. Uh, so we needed some very uh, nice complementary illustrations, and that's that sort of packaging was mine really. And but the concept was actually Lawrence's, and I give him full credit. Um, but then I could see that uh, you could do this, that you take this concept, extend it uh, into many other areas, which is what we've done. And uh, I have to say, Lawrence sure. is super happy about that. He I bet doesn't that's feel true. cheesed off. He's actually very happy. <laughs> I should also say that the books are beautiful and they're very interestingly designed and they're full of art. And again, this is unusual for a university press. Yeah, yeah. These are these could have been published by any large trade houses, I have yeah. to say. Um, yeah, we, we really have focused on the design and packaging and um, tried to make them as accessible and uh, sort of gifty as possible, which doesn't yeah, well, mean the really... content is sort of dumbed down in any kind of way, but they really are very attractive. It's um, yeah. 
I was going to say it's funny because these are collectible books. I mean, you would want, I, I, I don't know, just maybe it's just me, but if I bought one, I would want to buy two. And if I bought two, I'd want to buy them all. Yeah, I think that's, that's <laughs> you're, a good, you're the ideal kind of uh, customer, obviously. But that is the, uh, the intent, yes, that you at least buy one or two. And if you like the concepts and you like uh, delving in to, to one, you're probably going to like uh, looking at well, all I just like the idea of them sitting there on my shelf as a, you know, like a, they would look very nice, you know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah I'm, uh, I'm showing Marshall the spines because they are yeah. really beautiful. But, uh, yeah, not good for radio, but it, nope. yes, they, they look really good there sitting on your shelf. You can go get them. Um, I, I imagine one of the challenges of producing a series like this is what to cover and how, how do you decide and can people propose new books in the series and so on and so forth? Yeah. I mean, obviously there are certain things that suggest themselves. Um, start with Fungopedia. Then you think, well, this would be good for trees. This will be good for flowers. This would be good for birds and so on. So I reached out to uh, either current or potential authors for all of those, uh, those particular topics. But we do have submissions from people who've seen books in the series and say, I'd like to do one on this or that. Some of them are actually too small or too niche uh, to consider, uh, but one or two have come through. um, That's great. Which is really nice, actually, Um, both that the books are clearly hitting a market and that people have an interest, interested enough, at least, to actually send in a proposal. That's really just good. what you want. I mean, you want to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I know plenty of people in this space, but I certainly don't know um, people in uh, neuroscience. We have a neuropedia coming up, so it's actually a sort of one on the brain. Um, so that's great. And I think as long as people can achieve the right uh, content and right level and can actually write well, mm-hmm. um, they, they're sort of um, candidates to do one. Well, we have a channel, New Books in Neuroscience, so you'll have to send me a copy of that book and we'll uh, interview the author. Right. I want to get that book, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have to say, it's such a, you know, it's such a nice uh, concept that uh, my fellow editors have actually sort of hijacked it and was suggesting books for the series, or in fact doing books for the series. Yeah, you know, no, I can understand that. Yeah, yeah, because it's really about the format and the appeal. We're kind of running out of colors now. We've slotted, you know, allotted well, rather, you know, multiple number of colors for these pretty little books and uh, we're sort of running out. Um, well, it's funny you mentioned that because the new books network has grown and grown and grown. And we used to, every channel used to have a particular color. This is really inside baseball, but finally the designer just said, it's all going to be blue now. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to go to shades at some point. Yeah. You know? we're gonna have shades of purple. We're gonna have shades. Yeah. Inside baseball design. Um, so, could you talk a little bit about the books themselves? What does one find in them? How are they arranged? Are there chapters or entries or essays? Or how would you characterize the books in terms of structure? Yeah, they are all A to Z references. Um, they have between 120 and 200 individual entries, um, which vary in length a great deal. So the Dynopedia, which is coming up in the fall, uh, actually has fewer entries, but they are much longer. Uh it is entirely up to the authors um, to suggest and compile the entries. It's a very personal take mm. on a broad topic. However, amongst all of those topics, there are some that obviously suggest themselves. You wouldn't do a bird one without talking about malt or some, some of the technical aspects. Um, but really, um, it's up to the author. Uh, we do suggest 
that they have some entries on folklore or law or, mm. you know, sort of some more light cultural stuff and biographies uh, of key people in that field. Uh, but it is interesting to look at the different uh, biographies. Again, some you'd expect, like Audubon in the Birdpedia one, but there, there are some odd, well, I would say odd, there are some interesting um, <laughs> biographies, you know, people you actually haven't heard of who are super mm-hmm. important. Uh, so, you know, it's it's author selection. Um, we give them a brief. They do vary in length a little bit. The Birdpedia one is much longer than the others, um, and there's a reason for that. I mean, there's so much to talk about with birds, and they're so popular. Um, well, that's actually a nice segue because um, I wanted to talk a little bit about birds. I'm not a birder, but I do feed birds in my backyard. I don't really know much about birds, except that my understanding is that they are, evolutionarily speaking, flying dinosaurs or something like that. Uh, they lay eggs and things like reptiles. So my question is, how would I use Birdpedia, a brief compendium of avian love, and what would I do with it? Um, you would dip in and dip out. If there was a particular topic you were interested in, uh, you know, dusting or something that you've heard of that I don't really <laughs> understand, you'd go there and you'd just go to D, dusting, and find it and read a nice, snappy, short, and quite f- funny, actually, entry. Some of the, the entries are fairly, uh, very light and amusing. There are lots of birding terms in there, like twitching and all of that kind of stuff. But there's some serious science, too. So there's a lot on migration. There's a lot on bird biology. So you just sort of hunt around. But quite frankly, I think the nicest thing to do is just dip in and dip out. And mm-hmm. you're always going to find something you didn't know. And it's uh, super interesting. It's, they're really intended for non-experts. I mean, and they're fun. That's I mean, me. we have actually, I have sold so many copies of Fungopedia to entomologists and you know, people <laughs> outside the area. And that's, that's really nice. I mean, that shows that they... The, the books have appeal as packages, but also interest to sort of, um, you know, sister disciplines, if you like. Um, well, I mean, it sounds like it's the case that, you know, someone like, I'm not a birder. I really don't know a lot about birds. I'm very interested in birds, but it sounds like a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I it's um, birding terms. Yeah. Because you're, you're going to be in the field. I can guarantee you if you go out there and you'll be very puzzled by some of the terms that people use. Well, I don't want to be, when I go in my first birding <laughs> group, I don't want to be embarrassed. No, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. I'm embarrassed. No. Uh, so it's fun. You know, they are fun. They're meant to be um, informative, light, uh, casual. You could certainly read them from uh, start to finish. And be much enlightened by the end of it, hopefully. But really, you know, it's a sort of dip in and um, just flick through them. And they have well, such nice, cute little illustrations. Yeah, um, as I say, they're beautiful books. Yeah, and I was also going to comment, when was the last time you read a book start to finish? I, I can't remember when the last time I did that. <laughs> I don't have the time. I don't know about you. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I usually dip in and dip out in any case. So yeah. well, why don't we uh, tell the listeners a little bit about some of the titles that you have uh, in the series already published, I think already published, maybe some of them are forthcoming. And I want to tell you that my ignorance in these subjects knows no bounds. So I'm probably going to ask some dumb questions. Um, so let's talk with about uh, Insectopedia. I'll tell you quite honestly, I'm afraid of insects. Um, will this book allay my fears or will it frighten the heck out of me? I uh, parts of it are guaranteed to frighten you a little bit because it's illustrated. But um, <laughs> we're hoping very much that, and, and the author actually expressed this, that you know, he is hoping to sort of enchant people with uh, just the range of insect life and their natural history and th- their beauty. I mean, you know, beetles actually are 
extraordinary, beautiful, for instance, dragonflies, all of that good stuff. So he really is on a mission to sort of educate and uh, convert, if you like. I mean, I, I fully understand there are plenty of people who are, you know, insects in the house, that's just get the pest killer in. But um, he's really trying to show the diversity of insect life and why it's important. Uh, and there is a great diversity of insects. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of insects. Well, you know, I'm from I'm from Kansas originally. And I'm from agricultural stock, and so insects were always the enemy. Where I it was <laughs> like we were trying to do everything we could to kill them because they were trying to take away our livelihood. Right. No, that's right. Yeah, every business does not like insects, but no, um, not really at all. Although yeah. I do have a friend who works in. Um, he, I, I don't really quite have the words for this, but he's an entomologist and he gets insects that he likes to eat the insects that we don't like. Right. Do you see what yeah, I mean? Yeah. 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 No, it's uh, it's using sort of uh, it's a, a form of pest control using another. Yeah, it is a, that's what he does. He's at the university of Minnesota and he does pest control, but he uses insects to do it, which is quite, you clever. have to be very careful there though, because if you introduce an insect that is non-native to deal with something yeah. that's native or non-native, Often you get sort of rather bad side effects. Um, but anyway, I'm yeah. sure you do. Well, I'll contact him and we'll talk about that. So here's a dumb question, and are and you may not know the answer to any of these questions. Are spiders insects? No, they're not. They're arachnids, <laughs> um, <laughs> in the same family as uh, have eight legs rather than six. Um, six, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, see, so. I told you I didn't know what I was talking about. And then a follow-up question: Are lobsters insects? Because they look <laughs> a lot like insects, <laughs> don't they? No. Um, <laughs> don't they, they look like insects, though. Yeah, right. But they look like insects. They've got to be on yeah. the branch of the tree. Yeah, they just look like very, very large. They're a little tastier than most insects. I suspect. They are much tastier. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right. So let's go on to Dinopedia. This is obviously going to be a popular favorite. And I'm also afraid of dinosaurs. Happily, there aren't any dinosaurs around anymore. Or am I wrong about that? Are yeah, there still dinosaurs that, around? Course. Yeah, um, birds <laughs> of dinosaurs. Um, there was a time when um, many folk believed that birds were somehow special, sort of a different lineage from dinosaurs. But yeah. all of those recent fossil finds in China have just confirmed the fact that, interestingly, um, most, if not all dinosaurs were feathered. Is that um, right? Really? Yeah, so even no. your famous T-Rex <laughs> would have some feathering, it's called vestigial feathering on the shoulders. And we learn about that in the book, right? That's explained yeah, in the book. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's a great uh, ton on, on proto-birds, as they're called, and archaeopteryx and all of the things that people, kids know so much about usually. Um, but yeah, so the idea that birds are not were not dinosaurs is really the nail is in that coffin. I mean, how do you like that? Um, yeah. Well, I do really, I, when, when I do think about them as feathered dinosaurs, it makes a lot more sense of them evolutionarily. Yes, absolutely. They, they are very reptilian in many ways. Yeah, many yeah. ways. You just look at young birds, particularly, they really are kind of uh, reptilian. <laughs> Flying dinosaurs. So yeah. here's another question to follow up on that. Um, my favorite dinosaur when I was young was the Brontosaurus. And then as an adult, I learned that the Brontosaurus didn't exist. Why, why is it the case that we can't get the taxonomy of dinosaurs down right? It is extremely <laughs> fluid, as they say. Um, the real problem is that we seldom find um, skeletons intact. You have yeah. so many problems about aging and, you know, you find one bone and then you realize this bone is actually associated with something else. And no one can agree. It's a very contentious area and there's tremendous disputes about what's related to what. 
we now think that, for instance, T. rex was not one beast. It's a superspecies. So there are lots of different T. rexes, if you like. Um, some smaller than others. Oh, um, great. More kinds of T. rexes. Yeah. You'll be pleased to know if you're scared of dinosaurs. The yeah. T. rexes hunted in packs. Good. They had fantastic eyesight. They had fantastic smell and were probably a lot smarter than dogs. I mean, they yeah. were the ultimate apex predator. Well, this is kind of interesting because one of the things that I remember when I saw Jurassic Park and so on and so forth, and that was based on some sort of recently modern understanding of dinosaurs. And they were all, at least the the, the, the raptors, that is the, this, the, the genera raptors, that is the, the, the carnivorous dinosaurs were all really fast, like birds. Yeah. I mean, yeah. some of them are super, super fast. Yeah. Velociraptor. Um, it's yeah. still, there's still a lot of argument about T-Rex because it was so large and it, uh, people now think it was a sort of um, snatch and grab predator. So it'd creep uh-huh. up on stuff and then just sort of grab it and then get it in those incredibly powerful jaws that could exert 3,000 pounds per square inch on a tooth. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah you don't want to so, be in, a, in the mouth of a so, T-Rex. So where do we stand with brontosauruses now? Are they... Is that, uh, yeah. Actually, it's, that's a great... <laughs> and he, uh, Darren Nation, Dinopedia, covers that re- in a very lengthy entry, which is super fascinating. So back in 1903, I think it was, um, some paleo guy found the first um, uh, specimen, if you like, of this thing. It was called Brontosaurus. Right. And actually, it turned out that this was just one of a whole family, that, and it wasn't very clear that this was an individual species as such yeah um but the um curator of the american museum of natural history put the label brontosaurus on the specimen there and it became so popular that he just wanted to retain it even though science <laughs> said, no, no 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 you can't do that you know it was good branding for yeah, the museum but in fact just recently uh the serious paleo guys have said well that particular specimen was an individual species so you oh. lost, let's call it brontosaurus again so all right so, bront- <laughs> so bront- bront- it kind of reminds me of pluto somehow so sometimes it's a planet and sometimes it's not a planet and well i'm glad yeah. to hear that brontosaurus is, is yeah, back yeah, three cheers for brontosaurus because every kid loves it so yeah you really that's absolutely true so let, let's move on to geopedia now this is about rocks right yeah rocks and rock formations and rocks and rock formation yeah. so i <laughs> This is a dumb question. Why are there many kinds of rocks? Why isn't there just one kind? Do we uh, about three, three basic <laughs> kinds, um, you know, formed by fire or pressure or both. Uh, and then amongst those, there are all of these different minerals. Um, again, really hard to... Um, now, does that include crystals and things yes, like this? Yes. So, you know, crystallized stuff is uh, found in many uh, rock formations. Um, and it's a question of pressure and heat and time. Um, I did I did not know that, and I have nothing else that's interesting to say about rocks. I'm sorry <laughs> to say, yeah, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Re- I, yeah, really, I don't. So let's move on to trees, Treepedia. I'll be honest with you, I, I'm not very big on trees these days. There's a huge oak tree outside my house that could crush my house. I think it might weigh, if you, if you include the roots, it might weigh as much as my house. And this worries me. Um, is the book going to give me indication of like, would I be able to try how, find out how old this tree was or when it's going to collapse and destroy my house? Or You could certainly find out how to age it because there's a, um, there is an entry on, um, it's called, what is it called? Dendro. Den- uh, yeah, I know, yeah, I know yeah. this word too, but I yeah. can't pronounce uh, it. And dendrochronology. Um, dendrochronology is right. Yeah. Uh, but it won't tell you how, you know, I think you just pick up the phone if you're really worried about it and call your yeah. tree service. But um, yeah. there is a section entirely on oaks because there are so many different oak species and, and also they are pretty special. They have huge sort of ecosystems living within them. 
uh, their own ecosystems. So there's a lot of, you know, biology, biographies, yeah. Yeah, I have to confess that most of what I know about trees comes from a knowledge of lumber. I've renovated several houses, so I know people who can grade lumber very exactly. They can just look at it and tell you what grade it is and what kind it is and these other things. I can't do that. Right. But there are people who can. (laughs) Having just come back from California and the California coast, which is, you know, you've probably been there and all of the... All of the eucalypts there were introduced in the 19th century. And they were yes, everywhere. that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they thought they would be good for three things, you know, shade, fuel, and wood for construction. It's the yeah. most awful wood. It, 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 yeah. You can't use it in building. It warps, and it also, uh, the trees explode in fire because they're yeah. so full of oil. And They're pervasive, and at least in Northern California. Yeah, I they're trying to eradicate them from some areas, but they, are, they do provide a lot of shade, and they're pretty old, some of them, so they've become the sort of non-native native. And uh, that's that's yeah. difficult for people. Well, there's a on the University of California Berkeley campus. There's a place called the Eucalyptus Grove. That's right. Which is enormous yeah. trees that are these kind of like blue gum trees. Yeah, well, they're kind of like weeds. Actually, they're yeah. like <laughs> I think that's they're very the tough. They they are drought resistant and they do provide a lot of shade. They and... smell nice. Yeah, <laughs> it's about all you can say. They, nice. they smell nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, we used to have this kind of tree. I used to teach at the University of Iowa, and I, I can't be specific about that, but it was a kind of tree. I think it's from Japan that stinks. It, it, it oh, ginkgos. Ginkgos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think this, the, this was a horrible tree. I can't remember if it's the female or the male. The male, that's reason, obviously, you don't plant that one because it does really stink. It so. stunk. Yeah, it was bad news. They were all over campus, and people were like, the stinky tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty nice, though. Yeah, very nice in certain ways, but they stunk. Um, well, let's move on to birds. This is something, as I said, I'm a little bit more uh, up to date on. And uh, is there, is there a section of the book about corvids and blue jays? Is there? Did there you get that specific? In uh, in Birdpedia. Um, yeah, in Birdpedia. Yeah. There isn't actually an individual section on corvids, but they are mentioned in bird intelligence because corvids are the smartest yeah. birds. Um, they can actually do pretty sophisticated puzzle solving. Um, there are lots of experiments that have gone on with that. Well, this is something I've seen myself because we feed them in my backyard, the blue jays. Yeah. They're very bright. They're, yeah, they, they are they, smart. They, they are have smart. us all figured out. Yeah. And they're also very bold. I mean, you can get them to come to hand if you take enough time. You can also get some corvids to speak. <laughs> um, I had a friend who had a, 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 a jackdaw in the UK that could actually talk pretty fluently. And a jackdaw, that's what you call a crow in the UK. Or is that uh, a no, different it's a species? Little, it's actually a, uh, a crow species, but it's not a... It's oh, not a okay. Yeah, no, these blue jays, and the blue jays have a bad reputation, and I don't really quite understand why. I think it's because they are, what is it called? They, they're, they're nest robbers. They're, um, yeah, right, nest yeah, robbers. But they, they aren't all birds nest robbers? Isn't this no, very common no. in the bird? No, it's just blue jays. Yeah, there are plenty of birds. That, well, squirrels do it, of course, as well. But there are yeah. plenty of birds, crows, that will take uh, nestlings. Yeah, yeah. There's a very famous uh, guy who wrote a book called Birds of Pakistan, and he had a garden in uh, Pakistan where he'd go every morning around and look at see what was nesting. But he had to stop because he worked out that the Indian house crows knew that he's worked out he was in all of his nests and went down and just rubbed them one by one by one because he found them and they just went. Oh. So he had to stop doing that. That's yeah. how smart they are. And are they parasite? I think it's called parasite brooders. Will they t- take over? Well, they put no, their, no. they're not, not, not no. crows. No, that's, um, that's more, um, cowbirds. 
but that's yeah. a nasty habit too. Is to yeah, drop it's your actually not stuff. that common in the bird world. Is it's that right? cuckoos and some cowbirds, um, and and one species of duck. Yeah. So well, just you- so the listeners understand, what the, if let me see if I understand. So what this means is, a bird of one species will go to the nest of another species and drop its egg there, so that the bird is essentially that's a cost. Can I do that with my kids? Is that- <laughs> <laughs> it sounds appealing, doesn't it? That's exactly right. Yeah. So, uh, say brown-headed cowbird will um, find uh, another species, lay its egg. The uh, you know the predated species, the one that's had the egg, uh, I think will um, feed that baby wow. and treat it as its own. And sometimes the young bird will actually push out the eggs or push out the young of the. Thing. It's not very nice. It's not a no. Very, it's it's it, but it's very clever and it's an amazing economizing clever. amazing economizing measure. Yeah. I mean, one how gonna... wonders how that actually evolved or how evolution. But as I said, it's actually not as widespread as you think. Um, yeah, you would think it would be more because it's kind of yeah. a, it's kind of parasitism, but it's a very it is. It's, yeah, yeah, it's a very clever kind of parasitism. But all right, so let's move on to uh, Floripedia, and that's flowers and things, right? Plants, gen- generically. Yeah, yeah. Is flowers, that right? Yeah, generally. I, yeah. I know nothing about flowers, to be honest with you. And uh, I'm a humanist, essentially. And what I know about flowers is that I think I took a Shakespeare class once, and the professor said, if I can remember, that flowers meant something for Shakespeare. Like there were different flowers that meant different things, like grief and other stuff like this. Is that covered right. in the book? Yeah, um, she touches on that in various accounts. It's true. So Shakespeare clearly had a a very deep, um, either folklorish knowledge. I mean, if you know the when Ophelia's floating, when she's described as floating down yeah. the stream, her nope. um, Gertrude <laughs> talks about all of the different flowers right. that actually she walked through to get to the the willow before she fell in. And throughout Shakespeare, there, there are tons of mentions of of flowers. Obviously, there was a sort of Elizabethan knowledge of either you know, herbal medicine mm-hmm. and, and flowers generally. But she does talk about, in the book, about Georgia O'Keeffe and Van Gogh uh, and their sort of representations of flowers. Uh, O'Keeffe was the first to really use the flower as sort of like an iconic, mm-hmm. um, very detailed painting. Um, well, I'm from, I'm from, as I told you, I'm from Kansas, and everybody from Kansas will know that's the sunflower state. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever seen what I think is a tremendously genetically engineered by selection sunflower, but they are freaky. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're yeah. so big. <laughs> they're huge. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the commercially grown ones are, are, are massive. Um, yeah. They look like something out of Star Trek. I don't know if anybody knows what Star Trek is anymore, but like, yeah, they're, they're, they're like something from another planet. They're so big. Well, let's let's move on to fungipedia, and that's mushrooms and things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. mushrooms and rusts and molds and all of those weird things. Yeah, so I I was in I used to live in Russia, and I I would go to the market there, and I remember I was at a market stall, and there were a bunch of mushrooms. Russians like to go out and collect mushrooms, and um, I I don't not I didn't know anything about mushrooms, and I'm like, are these safe to eat? And this old man said to me. Anything that grows in the woods is safe to eat. <laughs> at, at which point, the, the nice Russian woman next to, to this gentleman took me aside and said, don't listen to that idiot. Yeah, I think that's right. She gave you the good stage of voice there. There are plenty of uh, poisonous mushrooms that grow in the woods. Yeah. 
So does it talk? Do, this is obviously not a guide to go out and pick mushrooms or anything like that. But um, does it talk about the difference between edible mushrooms? It and does. Yeah. It does. It um, it focuses. It's not a book about you know how to cook and right. do all of those kind of things. But it talks about different kinds of you know shiitake and all of those kind of uh, mushrooms. But it also talks about the super poisonous ones and also the chemical properties of a lot of these things. It talks about magic mushrooms yeah. and um, you know mycorrhiza, all of these things that are absolutely essential to the functioning of a lot of ecosystems. Without them, you know, a lot of trees would not be able to um, yeah. operate. Uh, it's well, a this is, yeah, this is another thing. I mean, I as I said, I've renovated houses and things, and when you get into the soil, you realize how much of the soil. Is actually a fungus. Yeah, it, I was it, actually looking again at the book today, and I'd forgotten there was a really great entry on King Tut. So yeah. you know when they broke open his tomb and they all died, or the two guys died very yeah. close to you know, and there was the curse of. It's actually called the yeah. curse of King Tut. Right. It's quite likely that the the food that they buried with the pharaoh for his afterlife to feed him on the in the afterlife journey actually uh, had fungus had mold had spores really in it. Wow. and three thousand year old spores they would have inhaled, <laughs> inhaled that stuff and it's it he says you know it's it's possible and more most likely that they would have had some massive allergic reaction to it right so fungi aren't plants technically are no, they? no they're not they're no, actually they're not, yeah. more closely related to uh animals than they are to plants That's right a mind-bending thing and i'm sure this is explained in the book exactly yeah. Yeah, 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 spores and such. You can see yeah, how the no, it's, it's yeah, but they are truly, truly fascinating. And, um, and well, I want to ask you what books are coming up. But before I ask you that, I, it's a question that I've always had: Is, is there going to be a viropedia about viruses? Because I think the question there is: Are those alive? What are those? <laughs> I yeah, yeah, that's a really good idea. Actually, a viropedia <laughs> would be great. Actually. Um, uh, it's I was listening to a virologist on NPR actually, who was asked that very same question. She said, "What the heck are these things?" And she said, which was reassuring, "It's really hard to describe because we don't. Are they alive? Are they not alive? Because they're not alive without a host, and yeah, they they're very hard to classify." Um, yeah, well, they're like little machines. They are. They are. Um, but weird little weird little machines of a, of a yeah, different just order. Replication, yeah. but they have yeah. to have a host to do that. And, yeah, um, yeah. I encourage yeah. you to do Viropedia because I find viruses absolutely, evolutionarily speaking, fascinating because they are the closest thing that you can find to a machine for the replication of DNA. Absolutely, that's all they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly all they do. They do yeah, it very they fast. can't do anything else. That's right. all they do. They're so like if you machines. want to call that. Life, which it is. Yeah. Um, I, I guess know. they're alive. But... I get, well, I'm certainly I'll hear from listeners who explain it all yeah. to me in great detail. I don't well, that's know. That's good because I, I, I'd like to hear that explanation as well. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Maybe somebody has it figured out. We're crowdsourcing this topic. Yeah. yeah. So can you tell us a little about what titles you have in the pipeline now for the um, Pedia series? Yeah, I mentioned one uh, which isn't mine. It's actually the uh, Neuroscience Center, Neuropedia, that's coming up. Uh, we have a Geopedia, we mentioned earlier. Dinopedia yeah. is out this fall. Insectpedia, um, we're considering doing one on dogs. Dogpedia, mm-hmm. um, which is going to be more about all of those behavioral things uh, and dogs as much as anything else. And um, Cosmopedia, about the galaxy, cosmos. Um, wow. But, well, as you said, you know, the 
the world is our oyster, oysterpedia. No. Well, yeah, um, this is the thing with the, so it, it, you know, uh, you, you're not only the person that follows you could be doing this, but the person who follows you who follows you could be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. It's going for a long time. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and you could have updates and new editions and everything right. fun. And you, know, you could have a whole library of PDA books. Yeah. The, uh, let me get on the mailing list for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're fun. They are fun. Right. But, you know, I would stress that they are both fun and informative. They really are. Let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Robert Kirk about the Pedia series from Princeton University Press. You can go to the Princeton University Press and you can find the books there and you can buy them. Robert, thanks so much for being on the show.